The reading is taken from the second letter of Paul to Timothy, and you'll find it on page 1195 of the Church Bible. Page 1195. And we're starting at the beginning of the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and, I am persuaded, now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God, the Spirit God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you uh, very much, Ellie, and thank you, Guy, for the warm welcome. It's a great delight to be back here, and I couldn't be more pleased to to, uh, hear the news of the appointment. I just heard that earlier in the week. Keep your Bible open if you have it uh, there at 1195. We're going to look at these few verses uh, together. Why don't I pray as we begin? Father, our prayer is that through the written word and by the spoken word, we may hear and see the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his name's sake. Amen. Amen. I find myself talking a while back to a friend who's an ordained minister. I admire him enormously. He's um, an excellent preacher and an effective leader, and he runs a fine and growing church. He's in demand as a speaker. He's kept his reading going and his study and thinking. And we were talking about some of the pressures in our very different lives. And at one point, he made a remark that shocked me. The real temptation in this job, he said, is to give up and to do something different. It's hard to keep going. And that uh, shook me, I think. I knew what he meant, but from him it unsettled me. And later I came across a Luther quote which resonated with this exchange. It's Luther on Genesis 3.19 and the effects of the fall on all our activity. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, is the text. And Luther writes, the household sweat is great. The political sweat is greater The church sweat is the greatest. Well, we know that, don't you? Don't we? Let me tell you, it's easier being a a judge than being in Christian ministry. I found that. Why? Because we dare to believe that the bottom line reality is that the church is the most important organization on the planet. And in ministry, we're engaged in the highest calling on the planet glorify God, and to help people know him and follow him. In the gospel, we're dealing in life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing truth. And that costs personally. It's tiring. 
and thinking of my male friend and making a point that isn't meant to be in the slightest sexist, the temptation not to keep going Christianly is one which I found can particularly hit men in midlife. Ah, yes, you know, we joke about our midlife crises and the male menopause and so on. I bantered about it myself. But when it comes to implications for Christian effectiveness, it becomes no laughing matter. For any of us, men or women, energy can go. Uncertainty can creep in. What have I really achieved? How useful am I? Is it all worthwhile? Am I up to it? And almost imperceptibly, we can begin to lose our cutting edge. And the wonder and privilege of faith and service begin to lose their luster. Fellowship becomes burdensome, and church life becomes largely problem-centered. And the vitality and the urgency just aren't there anymore. And to be honest, changing the car or planning the holidays seems almost more exciting, more pleasurable than relating to God's people and building his kingdom And each week, people file into our services and our home groups, aching for eternity. And I'm thinking mainly of getting home to slump in front of Newsnight or the Antiques Roadshow. And sometimes it's worse. We make barmy decisions. We give up on marriages. We have affairs. We drink too much. We wildly overspend. I know ministries that have been derailed by all those things. So let's not fool ourselves here. You can be a dynamo for years and then suddenly, seemingly, run out of steam. You can be as keen as mustard and then suddenly find in your heart you're saying, is Christian service really worth it? Well, Timothy, I suspect, was feeling the strain of ministry. That's what this uh, little letter is about. He was under pressure, church sweat. I've no idea if he was in a midlife crisis, but uh, as a leader, and by now probably a person in his mid or late 30s, he was certainly midlife by the standards of the time. Here was an unlikely youngster, probably 18 to 20, when, he, when it all began for him, who'd come to be the right-hand man of the outstanding leader of the Christian era, Paul. And now he's leading a church in Ephesus, which for sure had issues no doubt about it. And he's finding out the hard way that Christian discipline and especially leadership is frankly non-stop pressure. And here's Paul, his hero, his mentor, his father in God, 30 years or more his senior, in prison for a second time in Rome, this time in dreadful conditions, and writing the last letter of his career. Preliminary trial is over, the death sentence is weeks if not days away, and he's writing passionately persuasively, pastorally, practically. 83 short verses by a man on death row containing a message of two words that Timothy and we need to hear. Keep going. Keep going. Verse 6. Keep feeding the white hot flame. One translation has it of God's gift, fan into flame, fan it into flame over and over again. It it, it will go out if you don't. 
even though it's the gift of God. So this book is no fireside chat. It's Paul's last letter. Uh, why, uh, would, uh, what would you want to say in, in your last letter to good friends in the church if you knew you'd weeks to live? What points might you want to make? You'd want, surely, to encourage, to motivate people to keep going. And here is a four-chapter appeal to rock-solid loyalty to Christ and the gospel. And it's a string of 33 verbs in command mode. A series of staccato urgings to mean business with Christ and his church. Hold, be, take, remind, avoid, remember, continue, keep, endure, do, and so on. And as it spoke to Timothy's heart, so it's meant to speak the same message to our hearts in our different ministries and service. And the first seven verses seem to throw up four significant encouragements to Timothy to keep going. Here's the first. It's there in one and two, verses 1 and 2. I've called it Paul's love. Paul begins where he always begins, aware of his unique apostolic authority. This is more than mere brotherly counsel. There's nothing sort of back of an envelope about these thoughts. He is, verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He's not a demoralized activist imprisoned by the will of Rome. He knows where he stands. And here is the old hand demonstrating yet again that reaction to setback is an acid test of spiritual leadership. He's in problems again. And he has no sense in those problems of having moved out of the will of God simply because, yet again, he seems to be suffering badly. There's passionate conviction that his role is ultimately neither man-made nor self-appointed. It originated in the call of God. And don't don't miss the delicious irony of these first two verses. With death staring him in the face, he can still view his apostolic task in terms of formulating and communicating, verse 1, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Well, the gospel is always the glorious reality that undergirds all our service. That's what makes it bearable. That's what gives it a point. That's what guarantees its ultimate worth. Nothing else can. So here's Paul writing, yes, authoritatively, but also intimately to this dear son. You see that, verse 2? invoking that threefold benediction of verse 2 on Timothy. He's not even got started yet, and here he is giving out the benediction. It's a nice irony. Do you have a relationship with somebody who helped you to faith? I have. Is there someone who is on the case encouraging you? Or putting the question the other way, are you doing that for somebody else? in the way Paul is here for Timothy. And and what a greeting it is. Do you see it? Grace. Expressing God's undeserved, unmerited, transforming kindness. The incomparable riches of his love for us. All that it means to be a child of the Father forever. All of God, through all of Christ, for all of us. A culture of grace oxygenates the church. Experience it, and you somehow watch people stand a little taller, breathe a little more deeply, feel a little freer to be themselves. That's that's what grace does 
in a church. Mercy. Going right to the center of the gospel, that inexpressible blessing of deliverance from the guilt and power of sin. And then peace, shalom. A word of wholeness, of integration, of that sense of inexpressible enrichment deep into our lives and personalities which Christianity can bring. Well, here's Paul's love. It goes way beyond niceness. We're good on niceness. This is a bigger thing. This is love. This has theological bite. It reminds Timothy, even as the letter begins, of the enormous privilege which is his and the staggering resources through other people that God makes available. And his love's characterized too, do you see this in the text, by steady prayer, verse 3, and you feel he means it, don't you? By recollection, verse 4, remembering the shared tears of their last parting, and by anticipation, a longing to spend time together again. Isn't this surely, friends, a rebuke to the superficiality and impatience of so many of our relationships in ministry? And the question perhaps is, who's doing this for you? Or the other side of that, who are you committed to encouraging, loving, bringing on with this intensity and tenderness? We need, don't we, to work a lot harder at loving encouragement like this. Here's Paul modeling it to Timothy. No one gives grace better than the person who is deeply persuaded that they need it themselves and that they are being given it through Christ and one another. So here's Timothy's first encouragement. He's loved. He matters to a great Christian. And when you know, you're, you, when you know you matter and that you're loved, well, you don't want to let people down or disappoint them, do you? And you serve and you give. The second encouragement is there in verse 3, Paul's prayers, verse 3. There's something tremendous when people say, I'm praying for you. And it's even better if they say they're thanking God for you. We need prayer by people who know us and love us if we're to function at all in Christian ministry or service. And that's true whether you're a bishop or a house group leader. And if you're praying for other people, thankfulness needs to be an essential ingredient. For a start, it's a sort of antidote to that worrying on our knees thing, which for most of us, frankly, characterizes a lot of our praying. Paul's wonderfully other-centered here. How easily he could have been focusing on his own dire predicament or worrying about the succession or his legacy or the thought that Timothy here as a relatively young minister might be about to make a complete hash of things in the Ephesian church with fears for the future, worries about the legacy, all those things. But he isn't. He sweeps Timothy up into the whole flow of biblical history in which Paul himself refers to his Old Testament forebears, his ancestors. They stand in a great tradition. Individuals matter in church life. In this little letter alone, over 22 names are mentioned, and I suspect most were on Paul's prayer list. We know Timothy certainly was. What an encouragement to keep going that we know somebody is praying for us. And who are we praying for in the life and work of the church? 
You know, when we stop praying for one another, it's because we think we're captains of our own destiny. And when we stop praying for the church, it's because we think we can manage it quite well on our, by ourselves. Thank you very much. Either way, prayerlessness is a horrible arrogance in ministry and service of which we need to repent. The third encouragement here I've called Paul's confidence, verses 4 and 5. There's no greater encouragement to keep going as a Christian than to know that somebody believes in you. I sometimes reflect personally on how different my own Christian life had been if those third-year students at King's London in uh, 1973, where I was doing law, hadn't said to me, become CU president. Or if Michael Bourne hadn't said to me at uh, All Souls Langham Place in 1981, become a reader. I thought, in both instances, you're kidding. I was about as fit for those posts at the time as I was for a medal in the Olympics, to be honest. But God doesn't seem unduly bothered by our mediocrity. Moses discovered that, and so have a lot of other great people down the ages. He tends not to call us to a task without somehow strangely enabling us to do it. He has more zeal for the health of the church than I ever will. That's reassuring. That's comforting. No one has more interest in my using my gifts than the person who gives them. Now, who of us would have had confidence to take on an untried 18-year-old convert, a teenager like Timothy, and throw him into the deep end of leadership, and 15 years later make him a bishop? Well, Paul did. And he has found that Timothy's faith was the real thing. Verse 5, it was sincere, it was authentic, it was really his. And he talks about his spiritual roots and his probably lone parent mother and grandmother. And those roots were sound. Theirs was a home, unusually then, as now, where the faith was lived and loved and modeled. And Timothy's been the beneficiary of that. And that was so valuable. Don't begrudge the family influence. It's immense in the Christian life. Glory in it. And if Timothy's finding it difficult to hang in in the adverse spiritual climate of Ephesus, he could do worse than think of what his old mum went through as he grew up and as she looked after him. Well, three wonderful encouragements to keep Timothy going in the faith. Paul's love... It's good to know that you matter to other believers and for them to know that they matter to us. Paul's prayers. It's good to know that somebody's heart aches for us. Who do we ache for? And Paul's confidence. It's good to know that someone understands our background and has believed in our potential. But the best encouragement is perhaps the last one, and here it is, God's gift, verses 6 and 7. Because God never calls anyone to service, and you'd probably not be here today if he hadn't called you to do something for him somewhere without equipping him. And Timothy's no exception, so Paul points him back to his charisma his gift of God, sovereignly given, which is in him 
through the laying on of apostolic hands, perhaps at his conversion or at some later ordination or commissioning service or something. We don't know. Either way, it has been a serious moment of commitment. Every real Christian has gifts. The question is always, what are you doing with them in the body? And Timothy is told, present tense, to rekindle his, to fan it into flame, to set it on fire again, as J.B. Phillips puts it, to stir up that inner fire. William Barclay, keep it at white heat. All those wonderful translations. No, there may be no midlife crisis here, but there's always risk. Flames go out without fuel. Limbs not used stiffen. They atrophy. So, let the gifts you've got burn for Christ. There's a good line in that old Morris West novel, Shoes of the Fisherman, where one of the cardinals asks the new pope what he wants, and he says, find me those with fire in their hearts and wings on their feet. Isn't that what the church needs? People on fire with love for Christ and fanning into flame, to use this phrase, through their use, his good gifts. D.L. Moody was once asked if he was filled with the Spirit, and he immediately replied, yes, but I leak. And we all do, and that's why regular refilling and rekindling are so important for all ministry. That's why it matters that we come together week after week here and in other churches where the Bible is taken seriously. But, you know, this isn't simply a matter of doing more, trying harder on its own. That could so easily on its own become the way of exhaustion and defeat and discouragement. You'd want to give up if this was just about us. No, God's gifts, we soon discover as we use them, are underwritten by God's power. Verse 7 reminds us of that. Do you see that? People who know the gospel's power will share it powerfully. God gave none of us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, of self-control. No one would call Sir Ranulph Fiennes the explorer timid or cowardly, and yet remarkably he calls the first chapter of his autobiography entitled Living Dangerously, timid disposition. His father died before he was born. Like Timothy, he was brought up by his mother and grandmother. He describes the struggle he had to find his feet in adult life. Timid Timothy, we sometimes think. Probably a bit of an introvert, a bit fussed about his health, I suspect. And yet, as a Christian leader, called to live dangerously. Verse 7 explains how it's done. In no way does the Spirit, capital S, God gives us, make us timid. Timidity in the service of the gospel is human, not divine. God's not responsible for producing cowardly, unconfident Christians. The resources are all there for what Jim Packer calls supernatural living through supernatural empowering which is at the heart of New Testament Christianity. 
There's power linked to, to our word dynamite, the sort of power that raised Christ from the dead. There are no batteries not included Christians. And that gives us guts, doesn't it? It helps us keep the faith and confront the culture when we need to do that. And it helps us to get through the baffling and traumatic suffering that sometimes can take us nearly to breaking point and yet not break. So there's power and there's love, agape love, that commodity that Christians introduce to the world, which reaches out in self-giving, which puts up with intolerable people and the dysfunctional people and all the people who spoil things in the life of a church. The Spirit gives us heart. It gives us fuel for the Christian family. And it frees ourselves from the twin cul-de-sacs of self-centered ambition on the one hand and mere slog on the other. And then finally there's self-discipline. Sophronismos, a great sort of untranslatable word, meaning divinely given self-control, a sort of calm, balanced judgment. What one commentator calls the sanity of saintliness, a balanced and prioritized mind, neither puffed up by success or embittered by failure. Not merely pottering around spiritually, not messing about with the faith. No, refusing to take a functionally unspiritual view of ministry focused on Christ and his interests and his honor. Friends, our passion for ministry is not about how you or I are being received. It flows out of the reality that we have already been received by Jesus. My success in ministry is never going to be because people like me. And it's the same for you. It's because he, Jesus, has accepted us and sent us. And the gospel is not just a set of facts to which we assent. It's a dramatic narrative that plots our whole identity. And my passion is not the result of my ministry being as glorious as I thought it would be. For frankly, it's pretty feeble and mediocre. Yours may be the same. But because he is unchangeably glorious and eternally there with me by his spirit. So we fan into flame the gift of God. We change as we press the gospel into our hearts deeper and deeper than ever before. We preach and teach and train and evangelize and counsel and love and pray and serve and everything with a gospel passion that inspires and ignites the same in the people who are around us. Well, here at St. Michael's you're about to enter a, a wonderful new chapter and may God in his grace and power make us all and you all faithful servants of Jesus here so that the light of the glory of God may shine in our hearts and shine in hearts that have been made dark by people looking for him and for life in the wrong places. Amen.